dog. My dog went flying through the air over the tree. I don't know how it did it. Okay. Damn it, I'm really confused. All I saw was my dog coming over the fence, and Nate was dead when she hit the ground. I didn't see any cars. All I saw was my dog coming over the fence. Uh, we got someone or something crawling around out here. Did you see what it was? Was it a person or an animal or? Jesus Christ, you better. Sir? Yeah. Hello? Get somebody out here. What's going on now, sir? That son of a bitch is about six foot nine, I don't know. Do you see him now, sir? Yes, I'm looking right at him. Uh-oh. Okay, hang on. He's right. Is he in your yard, sir? Yeah, God, he's big. Okay, what's he doing in your yard? He's looking at me. show everybody this is bigfoot in the citizen scientist podcast and i'm your host tyler i want to thank you for being here if you've had an encounter or story you'd like to share with me email me at science meets bigfoot at gmail.com or if you're listening on anchor.fm feel free to hit that message button to send me in a voice message i can play them on future episodes or just listen either way works just get at me today we will be focusing in on a research project out of washington state called the Olympic Project. They have aided astronomically to the evidence database and have come across some pretty peculiar and amazing finds such as believed Sasquatch nests. So please keep an open mind as you listen to the facts behind the Olympic Project. A big crowd gathered at Lacey City Hall Wednesday night to hear WashingtonBigfoot.com founder Ryan Leesinger speak about the history of Sasquatch in Washington. Leesinger, whose day job is working IT for the state of Washington, founded WashingtonBigfoot.com in 2013. He says the site's main objective is to focus on the culture, history, and importance of Bigfoot in Washington. Leesinger says Washington leads the nation in reported Bigfoot sightings. He says Bigfoot popularity and cultural impact has skyrocketed in the last few years. It's, it's, we're seeing it more and more. You see uh, Bigfoot in advertisements, you see Bigfoot by um, uh, city you know, transit groups are now doing Bigfoot commercials and you're just seeing it more into the culture. And um, it's ebbed and flowed throughout history. It's, there's been times when Bigfoot has been a pop culture thing and been on TV more and then it kind of disappears for a while. And this is one of those times where we're definitely seeing a, a rise in popularity. Leesinger concluded his speech with a Q&A portion allowing attendees to ask questions and share Bigfoot stories and sightings. Bigfoot enthusiast Misha Ralston says her first Bigfoot sighting occurred two years ago while camping in the Nisqually Valley. She and her husband often go on Sasquatch lookouts and travel across the state to attend Bigfoot events and gatherings. 
my husband says he's actually had physical eye contact with one. I haven't, however, our Friday night date night is going out in the woods to listen and to um, observe. And um, one night we were going to our normal spot and we went to walk in and we hear, oh, 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 you know, like a really monkey deep gruddler sound right where we would have been sitting like 30 yards in. And we're like, hmm, he goes, we're not going in there. <laughs> Leesinger says Bigfoot enthusiasts use his site to share sightings and plan future gatherings across the state. Those interested can visit WashingtonBigfoot.com for more information. I'm Sean Wells for iFiber One News. The Olympic Project is an association of researchers, trackers, biologists, and investigators that are dedicated to documenting the existence of Sasquatch through science and education. Through comprehensive habitat study, DNA analysis, and game camera deployment, their goal is to obtain as much information and empirical evidence as they can with hopes of being as prepared as possible when and if species verification comes to fruition. Their studies are conducted in a non-invasive manner with respect and sensitivity to probable habitat that they believe this amazing species inhabits. The team is comprised of 26 trained and professional members ranging from field research to bioacoustics, hair sample, DNA, game camera, thermal, audio, video, photo, and interaction analysis, along with one meteorologist and are still adding people to the roster to this day. There are two co-founders of the project, whom we will be mainly focusing in on today. Everybody has their own important role to play in this research project though, so I highly recommend going to olympicproject.com and checking them out. The two co-founders of the project, Derek Randalls and Rich Germeau, have both had encounters which in fact aided the start of the project when an idea to implement game camera traps in order to catch evidence of the species was brought up. The following account is pulled from YouTube's Destination America channel and goes into Derek's Sasquatch encounter, followed by a recording of YouTube's Big Truth with an interview with Derek about the Olympic project, his encounter, and the project's findings. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy Derek's story. trailhead probably I'm gonna say around two o'clock we ended up going probably about a mile and a half past Camp Pleasant as sunlight began to fade they hiked off trail another half mile and set up camp on a mossy finger ridge And then all of a sudden we hear this crash. And we just kind of stopped. And the only thing that I could think of at the time was maybe we spooked an elk because the crash was pretty big. It, it sounded heavy. As we're peering to the left, all of a sudden here comes a rock. And it lands about 10 feet to the left of us. It was deliberately thrown. And at that point, <laughs> time just kind of freezes. With a rock that size, was this an attack by an out-of-control hiker? 
or a creature too scary to imagine. As we're processing that, another rock flies and lands, almost hits the other one, very accurately thrown, lands about 10, 12 feet to the left of us again. And then it's just like it got real at that moment. There was an overwhelming feeling of being in trouble, being in danger. Something felt very wrong. It was a very dreadful feeling. Get out of here, man. With no idea what they were up against, escape into the woods seemed the only option. Now we're in full-blown panic at this point. I'm running down this, this mountain. I don't know if you've ever been in a dream and something's chasing you and you're having a difficult time moving. It was just, it was almost like everything was in slow motion and I could not get fast enough down that hill. I'm headed down the ridge at this point and I remembered that I had a 357 in my backpack. Look, pull up, man. I stopped, pulled out my gun, and just very quickly looked back. I saw a Bigfoot. And when I laid my eyes on this thing, everything froze. And I knew exactly what was throwing the rocks at us at that point. It was very large. The light was faded to a point to where I couldn't make out facial features, but I was absolutely, absolutely terrified. I can tell you without a doubt that was one of the scariest moments in my life. Thanks for clicking into another edition of Sit Down with Ed Brown. Our guest today requires no introduction at all. In fact, he was also our very first guest here on the show ever. Uh, please welcome to the show, Mr. Derek Randalls. Hey, Derek, how you doing? How's it going, Ed? It's good to be here. Oh, man, it's great to have you on again. Uh, it's been a while. <laughs> yeah, it has been a while. How's everything out in Washington? Man? Everything going good? Everything's going good. The weather's kind of almost cooperating, and... Uh, Economy seems a little bit better, and we're super busy at work, and research is full tilt, and can't complain. Sounds good. Sounds good. Can you complain about that? No, not uh, at the all. Weather's, the weather's doing good and everything. Is that uh, giving you an opportunity to get out there and, uh, and do some squatching? Yeah, as a matter of fact, we've been doing quite a bit here lately. Uh, we still have an expedition coming up the 7th of May, but we've been, we do a lot of, uh, how should I say, a lot of in-house stuff where we're where, you know, core members or just, just anybody in the Olympic project can come up and we go we, we go out and we'll hit the field. We'll what we've been doing the last couple outings, we've gone up twice I think in the last four or five weeks and we're exploring some pretty remote areas and setting game cameras and checking cameras and uh exploring some areas we haven't been to and it's been uh, it's been really exciting and fantastic actually. So it's Great. been a, a, va a very active year so far. Sure, sure. Now, speaking of your, you know, your little events that you that you put on up there, which, you know, I, I had an opportunity to look over your, um, I guess your post that you put out, you know, letting people know that you're having this, and it seems like you're doing something a little different this year than, or at least with this event than than normal. Uh, you kind of looks like you're taking a ladies' approach. Yeah, well, you know, we're we're very fortunate to have some very qualified, very intelligent women in the Olympic project. And uh, this first expedition, we're going to kind of showcase 
some of the gals that are in the Olympic project and their views and their research. And uh, I'm, I'm really excited about it. Uh, we're going to have uh, Cindy Cadell. She's an Olympic project member. She's going to be speaking. Uh, Barbara Olvera is going to be speaking. Diane Stocking Neese is going to be speaking. Uh, let's see here. Who am I forgetting? <laughs> oh, Cindy Dosen from Canada, also an Olympic project member. She's going to be speaking. And these, these gals have a lot to offer, uh, a lot of insights, uh, just a whole lot of intelligence between the four of them. And uh, I, I'm actually really excited to hear all the presentations. I've, you know, of course, talked one-on-one -on -one with all of them multiple times, but they have some some very cool presentations planned, so I'm excited to see that. I'm excited Great. to hear it and be a part of it. Well, that's one of the really interesting things about your you know, your expeditions that you put on out there is it's not about just going out in the woods and experiencing, uh, you know, what researchers are doing, but it's, it's an educational event as well. Um, talk a little bit about that. What, what, what are you what are you offering to the people who go out there and experience your, your expeditions? Well, here what we're not offering is uh, telling people they're going to come out and see Bigfoot or have a Bigfoot <laughs> encounter. <laughs> uh, you know, the expeditions are held in a in a what we consider a very active place. Been doing research up in that area for many many years, and uh, what we do the way the way that the expeditions are are made and organized and constructed is we we try to take enthusiasts and researchers and educate. We, we try to turn enthusiasts and researchers into more prepared enthusiasts and researchers. We take the, the the work that we've been doing in the Olympic Project, and there's a lot of work that we've been doing in the Olympic Project as far as uh, data analysis and as far as audio analysis. Uh, David and Tom have just been doing tons and tons of stuff. They're actually breaking ground in a few areas. So what we do with the attendees is we share our most recent, latest uh, research with them. We give them presentations from some of the top people in the field. We go out and do free hikes in this area and look for tracks and go tracking. Uh, and, and on top of all that, we give six classes, everything from track casting to facing predators to wilderness survival, backpack preparedness, audio analysis, uh, DNA gathering, and on and on and on. So it's it's a whole bunch of information, you know, shoved into you in three and a half days. And uh, the cool thing about it is most, almost all of the people that have been on the expeditions now, in turn, have a good set of tools to go out and document the evidence that they find. Because one of the things we're very, we're very, uh, very uh, comprehensive about is, is evidence documentation. So you can take all the Bigfoot stories that have happened, and then now you know you can put this documentation to them, and then you have you know new information that you can learn from. And we're doing an enormous amount of documentation, as a matter of fact. And so all these people that have been going on these expeditions now, in turn, share their information with us and share their research with us. And it just helps. It helps It helps everybody learn more about what we're trying to do. So let me ask you about your expeditions. Now think back to um, something that's happened on one of your expeditions where, you know, I, I guess, let me rephrase this. Has anyone claimed to have had an experience or seen something or anything of that nature that would be Bigfoot related? Yes. Uh, I, I can't say that too many people have claimed to have a sighting. We've had one or two people think they have seen, you know, thought they had seen something. But there have certainly been audio encounters. Uh, we have found tracks on the expeditions. 
and actually one expedition last year when Adam Davies was with us, there was quite an exchange with Adam and something in the woods, uh, kind of a grunting contest, and uh, it, it from both sides of the trail that they were on, as a matter of fact, and that was very interesting, and I have actually personally experienced activity, what I consider activity at least, up in the same area. So yeah, things have happened. Uh, we've recorded a lot of audio. Uh, we've heard good, distinct, you know, wood knocks on some of our night ops. Uh, but again, you know, we don't, we're not advertising saying, come on out here and we're going to sure. give you a Bigfoot encounter. That's, we're not anywhere near that. You know, we're, we're about the opposite from that. We, we just want to get people out there, you know, people come on these expeditions and they do cost money and that money goes back into our research because doing the research that we do on the level that we're doing, it does cost money. Sure. You know, as far as the cameras and the equipment and the thermals and this, that and the other thing. But we we don't just bring people out and say, okay, we're going to take you out in the woods and hope you have an encounter. That's just absolutely the opposite of what we do. We try to educate people on, number one, how to be in the woods, how to survive in the woods, how to be prepared to be in the woods. Because if you're not prepared to be in the woods, you can't go out and do effective research unless you only get 30 feet from your car. And I think a lot of researchers don't think that, uh, or don't, not stuff they don't think, but sometimes people don't put it in perspective. The wilderness can be a very unforgiving place. And generally, you're doing your Bigfoot research out in the wilderness, and you need to be prepared to be out there. What happens if you're out there and you break your leg? What are you going to do? Do you know what to do? What happens if you get out there and you get lost? Do you know how to keep yourself alive? Do you know how to stay warm? Do you know how to find your way out of the forest? And so we put a lot of emphasis on, you know, these subjects, just trying to get people more prepared to go out and do effective research. The more prepared you are when you're in the wilderness, the more effective research you're going to do. Because, you know, it's, that's a given. Sure. I think that's an excellent point. And, uh, you know, you mentioned uh, Adam Davies. And, and, and first, let me say that, you know, I'd say he would probably be the winner of that grunting contest, by the way. Um, but, uh, <laughs> He's pretty good at it. <laughs> but, I, but it's funny what you're saying is, is really reminiscent to what Adam told me uh, when I spoke with him before. And that was the first thing that any researcher should know before they go out in the woods is understand the area you're going to first. Is that something that you would... You would agree with? Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. You know, we uh, one of the one of the classes we teach is just you know about being prepared and going out there. You not only need to understand the area, you should study maps. You know, know where you're at. You know, get familiar with your surroundings. I one of the things I teach is a hike plan is kind of like a flight plan. You know, if you're going to go out, and you're going to research. There's several things you need to do. You know, you need to let people know where you're going. You need to write down and document where you're going to go, when you're expected out, what you expect to do when you're in there. That way, if you don't show back up, somebody knows where to come look for you. You know, and then on top of that, you know, just getting yourself wicked prepared. So if anything happens out there, you, you're going to get out okay. Sure. But yeah, that, that particular uh, expedition with Adam Davies was was uh, really cool because some things were experienced by two different teams. I don't mean to change the subject back over on you here, but uh, John Pickering and I and a couple other people were actually up higher on the ridge, quite a bit higher in elevation. And Shane Corson and Tom Baker and Adam Davies and that crew were down below us, almost directly as profiles below us in a north-to-south configuration. And as they were being paced on the hillside, according to them, being paced, something was walking through the woods, and granted, this is the middle of the night, sure. uh, there were wood knocks going off, very distinct wood knocks going off between the two teams that John and I and our crew was hearing. And uh, so we've been actually researching that area on foot very heavily in the last few weeks. 
but uh, yeah, it was it was quite an experience for everybody involved. Uh, the team, our team up on the hill, and then uh, Adam's team down below. There was definitely some pretty crazy things going on. Yeah, that'd be awesome. It would be that would be a, a very unique thing to experience. And I've talked to people who have had that very same type of I don't know, for lack of better words, we'll call it an encounter. They've had the same type of encounter or experience, I should say, I guess. And uh, and, it, and it's interesting. You mentioned that that was in the middle of the night, and that actually leads me to an in, another interesting question, and that is, do you seem to get more activity during the day or during the night? I would think that the vocalizations, well, I don't think, I'm, I'm quite sure, the vocalizations uh, happen, seem to happen much more at night. Mm-hmm. You know, and, the, you know, we are, I, I am up personally much more during the daytime. I'm not a great big nighttime guy. I like to get out and hike. I like to explore. I like to do camera work, and I like to look for tracks. Right. So the bulk of my research is done, me personally anyways, during the daytime. I do like to go out at night. Uh, the problem on these expeditions doing the night ops is we'll go out and do them, but I'm up usually the first one up in the morning on the expeditions, and after the night ops are done, might get three or four hours of sleep and then back up again. <laughs> so by the time the expedition's over, everybody's a little thin in the skin, but uh, we, ha- we have a great time. But, yeah, it, I think uh, as far as the vocalizations, wood knocks, things like that, I think the, the majority of them do happen in the evening. Now, several wood knocks have – we have recorded several wood knocks during the day as well. But uh, I think that it seems to be that they're more active in the evening. Hmm. Well, I, I guess I, I asked that question because I, I recently had a conversation with someone about uh, about that very subject, whether they're more active at night or more active during the day. And, and I, I'm, I'm of the opinion, and correct me if you know if you disagree, you know, please tell me. But I'm of the opinion that people experience more things at night because they can't see. You're more aware of the sounds you're hearing which if you don't understand what those sounds are, and again, that goes back to being prepared, but if you're, mm-hmm. not, if you're not sure what those sounds are, suddenly it's possibly Bigfoot related, and maybe it's not, you know? So mm-hmm. so, so I, I do think that, that there's some correlation to that in the nighttime experiences, and, and personally, I believe they're more of a daytime animal myself. But. Right, and that, that's one of the reasons the flare is so important here, you know, having a good thermal, because that, that erases the gray area. Sure. You know, right out of the scenario because, yeah, when you're out there, if you're on a quote-unquote Bigfoot expedition and it's midnight, 1 o'clock in the morning, you're wanting, expecting, hoping something's going to happen. The power of suggestion is very, very real. And, uh, you know, you hear a sound and, you know, it's Bigfoot. And, you know, about 99.9% of the time, if not more, it's not Bigfoot. Right. You know, and that's, that's the cool thing about the, the flare and the thermal technology is you can, if you're in an area at least where you have some visibility, you can turn that sucker on and you can, oh, nope, it's a deer. It's standing right there. So it's, it, that's a great educational tool because some people that come on these, you know, there's all kinds of people in the Bigfoot world, as you know. Absolutely. And, uh, there's a, there's a big group of people who think everything's a Sasquatch or the Sasquatch are all in the trees and let's get the yellow marker out and draw circles and sure. we're pretty much the opposite of that. <laughs> You know, uh, in my opinion, and again, everything I ever say or anything that most anybody in the Olympic Project says is, is just opinion because there is nothing definitive to say about Bigfoot. Zero. Right. Zilch. Nothing definitive whatsoever. Mm-hmm. It's all good theories and uh, ideas and opinions. And uh, in my opinion, they're extremely rare, extremely intelligent, and very covert. And so if I'm right, that means you're going to have very few experiences. 
Right. You know, and one of the things, one of the other things that we put emphasis on at these on these expeditions and these trips is knowing the wildlife that's out there, being able to identify what a barred owl sounds like. You know, understanding the repertoire of a coyote. You know, uh, what does a bull elk bugle sound like? You know, it can sound like a million different things. What does a cougar screaming sound like? And so, you know, we we push people into getting more informed. So when you do go out there, your eyes are open, and you're not you're not just uh, kind of ex- you know think that everything's a Sasquatch because almost nothing right. is a Sasquatch. Sure, sure. Well, perfect example. Last night, um, I'm on the phone and I hear some god-awful crying noises outside, right? I had no idea what it was, no clue what it was. Obviously not Bigfoot-related because I live in a subdivision. <laughs> but I was like, why in the world? And my girlfriend, who used to live out the woods in Washington, who now lives here, but she said, oh, that's a raccoon. It's a raccoon that's you know screaming or crying or maybe fighting or something. And I'm going, I, I wouldn't have gotten raccoon out of that in a million years, you know? <laughs> so... It's it's real easy. I guess my point is, it's real easy to be fooled by what you hear when you can't see what's making the sound. Absolutely. So, so yeah. So Absolutely. And a, and a big bull elk walking through the woods in the middle of the night, which they do, sounds like a freight train. You know, <laughs> and it's very easy if you're on a Bigfoot expedition or out doing Bigfoot research, and you hear this big thing coming through the woods. It's got to be a Bigfoot. Well, no, it's probably not a Bigfoot, but. Right. You know, we're just uh, we try to we try very hard to keep it real because right. I think that there's a ton of people in the community that are not keeping it real. And you know, Bigfoot research is very it's very fun, but if you get caught up in the seriousness of it, it can be incredibly frustrating because evidence is not around every corner. Right. And people, you know, could be wrong here, but in my opinion, people get so frustrated because it is a very hard research subject that they start reaching for things, sure. you know, and uh, I think there's a lot of that going on. And uh, now I'm the first guy to say, I don't know. I, I just don't know. You know, does, does Bigfoot have any powers beyond, you know, the natural world? I have no idea. I hope not. And if we ever find out that Bigfoot does, I'm pretty much, I'm done. I'm going to go into big cat research at that point. You know, uh, I don't want to believe that. And uh, I don't believe that. But, uh, I, you know, I'm, I never say I'm right about anything. I don't think anybody should because it's all, like I said, there's just nothing definitive to say. There are a lot of good people that have a lot of good theories that have done a lot of research, that have great opinions, and they're probably right about a lot of stuff. I think we're right a lot about a lot of stuff, but we just don't know yet. Right. And that's one of the things that's so, you know, intoxicating about this is it's it's hard. You know, it's, it's a it's a monstrous challenge. And some people get burned out. Some people start inventing crap. And some people just dig it and love it and eat it up. And that's kind of where we're at. Well, if it's any consolation, I actually am watching your uh, cat video right now, so it looks like you're off to a good start on your cat research. <laughs> you know, the funny thing is, I, I could actually make that transition and be totally cool. With it. I love cats. Yeah, that's. And we have been we've been fortunate enough to document probably close to 30 different cats on different ridgelines now. And I, I get very excited when we get a, a big, you know, predator cat on video. Sure, sure. Like so. I. I it would be it would be so cool to to witness firsthand some of the things that you guys see. You know, and you sent me, you know, a bunch of pictures for this video and, and I'm watching the video and I'm looking at the pictures, I mean, and 
it's the backdrop. You know, the pictures are cool. You know, the people are funny. They're, you know, they're having a great time, and it's, it's great and everything else. But look at the backdrop. I mean, look where you're working. I mean, my God, it's mm-hmm. heaven. You know, I mean, seriously, yeah, it's it's beautiful there. And uh, it, it would definitely be a great opportunity to to experience nature at its best out there where you guys are at. It is. And, you know, I am with the Olympic Project, one of the, one of the great things about where it's come and where it's at right now is there is a lot of really smart people in this group. And it's far smarter than me. And I don't say that as a joke. I say that in all seriousness. I mean, David Ellis is amazing. Uh, he's just amazing. Uh, Tom Baker, amazing. Uh, Shane Corse and Matt, Matt Jones. Uh, and so one of the people that's fairly new into the Olympic project and my hero, literally my hero in the research world is John Pickering. And he's, uh, he and I, we get out there and we do in the last, especially in the last few weeks, we've done just an enormous amount of off-trail hiking, up and down ridges, up on the benches, and exploring, doing camera work. And that right there, that's the reason I do this. I mean, just to get out there, explore through the woods. You know, we get out there in our happy place and get tuned in with nature and look for tracks and set cameras and try to outsmart these things. And it's just, uh, it's a beautiful thing. I love it. And and my role in the Olympic Project, I I finally, you know, I got got to the point to where, you know, because I'm one of those people that tries to do everything. I try to maybe micromanage and, and do everything. And now <laughs> my role is, you know, along with the necessitating, you know, the expeditions kind of, uh, everybody does that, but, you know, that's, I kind of take that take that role. And uh, my, myself and my partner, James Million, anyways. And then, but everybody else, they're, they're doing this stuff. And I, I just want to do camera work and I want to hike, go off trail hiking and, you know, do my camera work and do some therming and I'm good. So it's a good it's a good thing that these other people are are in and you know it's just it's just a fantastic team. I can't say enough about the people that I get to work with. And uh, oh. John and I have been having some pretty amazing times this year. Just uh, getting very remote, being living out of the backpack. It's just so much fun. Sure, sure. And and I see that you know I mean you're, you're number one. You're a lucky man for what you're doing, but you also you know you got this beautiful wife who also enjoys the same things you do. She's out there with you. In fact, I see her name on here. She's going to be helping with the some classes as well. And I mean, how cool is that? You get to work with it's, your wife and enjoy your I'm life. I'm so lucky to have her. Yeah, she <laughs> she probably deserves a hell of a lot better man than me. She's she's an amazing woman. Uh she's also one of the most capable, you know, wilderness people that you're ever going to run into. Sure. You know, she hunts and harvests her own deer. She is an amazing tracker. Uh she's one of these people that can put a backpack on and I'll see you in 12 hours, you know, type people. And I don't worry about her because she's prepared to be out there. She knows what she's right. doing. And she's a wealth of information when it comes to the wilderness. And so I'm going to actually put her on the spot on the next expedition and make her talk a little bit about some stuff. You know, right. public speaking isn't something she's ever really wanted to jump into, but she she's a beautiful resource and uh, she's a beautiful, beautiful gal. I'm a lucky man. Yes, yes. And I think you are. And, uh, you know, I've not had the opportunity to see hi to her yet. But uh, um, I guess I, I will actually be meeting you guys here pretty soon, as a matter of fact. But uh, uh, looking forward to that. Um, yeah, Beachfoot. Yes, yes. So we've been on <laughs> Beachfoot and uh, and uh, really looking forward to that. That's going to be a, a lot of fun. And uh, um, so, but, but, you know, obviously I don't want to get off track. I want to try to stay on the, the Olympic project. <laughs> Understood. <laughs> but we, we 
okay, as an outsider looking in, right? Um, and you guys charge. How much do you charge for for your expedition? Uh, it depends. This particular what we what we used to do is we'd have up to twenty people, and then we learned over a couple of years that's too many, and sure. the prices were down a little bit. Now we have a maximum of twelve people, and the price per person is four hundred and seventy five dollars. Uh, for two, if two people want to come, a couple, like a man and wife, or two, you know, one person with their significant other, or a father and son, or something like that, it's six seventy five. So there's a little bit of a discount for two for a pair as opposed to a single ticket. And 12 people maximum, and that's it. And we're only, matter of fact, this this could be the only expedition we do this year. Uh, but we we might do one or two more. We're just not really sure. I mean, the expeditions are fantastic, but they they take a lot out of you. You know, it's, it's a very intense three days, and uh, they're a lot of fun. And, you know, I... I <laughs> We'll probably probably do one or two more this year, but I haven't had anybody come forward and say, "Hey, man, that that, that wasn't worth it." Because between the classes and the presentations, the camping, the hiking, and the camaraderie with some of the top people in the Bigfoot world, it's 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 a pretty square deal. Sure. Well, and I've talked to a few people who have been there, and and everybody has told me that that it's been a great time. It's been you know extremely educational, and and I think that for me personally, that's the most interesting thing is the fact that it's so educational. Mm-hmm. I, I can go, you know, an, an hour away from where I'm at now, and I live in Ohio. I can go an hour away from where I'm at right now, and I can go out in the woods and walk around all day for free. It's the education you get. It's the, it's the what you're picking up from seasoned researchers who know what they're talking about. That's mm-hmm. where the, you know, that's to me is is the most important part of what you're doing. Excuse me. Well, there there are a lot of us that spend a very large amount of time in the woods, you know, myself being one. Myself, uh, John Pickering, James Million, Shane Corson, Matthew Jones, we we spend a lot of time in the woods, and we are a good resource. And we're not, you know, one thing that we decided in the very beginning before we ever had our first expedition is this isn't isn't a money grab. This is, we're going to actually teach everything that that we possibly can, you know, and now what we've got, is this whole body of people, alumni, uh, for lack of a better word, the people that have been on expeditions that share their research with us. Several of these people have come back. And now that they're doing it kind of the Olympic project way as far as evidence documentation and keeping records, uh, <laughs> it's just amazing. Sure. It's just amazing. And once, you know, you have so much documentation, like I've, you know, spoke about many, many times, if you document an area, say a core area, over the, the course of three to five years, you're going to start seeing patterns. You know, if your documentation is, if if you're on it, you're going to start seeing these patterns, and we are seeing patterns. We're to that point, and that's really exciting. You know, because if I can, if I know that on such and such night, I'm I've got the best chance of getting a vocalization, and I know at what elevation to be looking for tracks, and I know what water source to key on, then we are advanced. We are making advancements, and we are literally making advancements, and it's, it's super exciting. Sure, sure, and, and I know firsthand because you were kind enough to send me. Uh, I think some of your partners anyway sent me some forms when I went out on my expedition uh, a couple months ago, and it's very detailed. And, and I definitely took advantage of that. And that was, uh, and, and that's something that people should people should know and understand. You know, if you're going out bigfooting and you're going out just to have a good time, then fine, go out and have a good time. But if mm-hmm. you're going to try to present evidence and you're going to try to um, 
base what you're finding on the evidence and document it. You know, give us something, you know, give the community anyway, something to say, okay, I see what you're, I see what you're talking about. You know, at, at this time of the year, they are at this elevation or, or whatever, you know. So, yeah, and uh, I think that's great. Yeah, it's 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 valuable stuff. And it, the funny thing is, is when we started the Olympic project, myself and Richard Richard Germeau, we all we were simply just a camera trap program. That's what we wanted to do, and because we had a lot of fun doing it. And sure. uh, Wally stepped up and put a bunch of cameras in our hands, and we went to work. Uh, it, 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 and the Olympic project has evolved, you know, a long ways since those days, seven years ago. And now with you know David Ellis, I've got to I've got to give him credit because I was kind of under that mindset too, you know, like hey David, I'm just doing this and having fun, and you know, sure we learn. He's like, no, let's start documenting, right. let's really get crazy about documentation. So I have to actually, you know, he's he's the guy that shoved that down my throat, sure. and uh, it needed to be shoved down my throat because I, I yeah, back in the old days, you know, I've got pictures of a lot of bigfoot tracks, but I didn't even cast for years, you know, a lot of the tracks that I found. Right. And, you know, so sometimes you just need to get, you simply need to get around smarter people and have them, you know, teach you some things and <laughs> you start doing things differently. And I'm just really happy with where it's at right now. And it's actually also really relaxing for me now because I've kind of settled back down and now I'm doing what I want to do in the Olympic project. David's doing what he wants to do. John's doing what he wants to do. Tom's doing what he wants to do. And Shane's doing what he wants to do. And it's it's all this great collaboration and it all fits fits together like a puzzle and it's just fantastic. That's awesome. That's awesome. And, and I gotta say, as if the time you're spending getting your your expedition uh, put together and, and everything you're doing with that and all the work you're doing out there in Washington, you're also going to Florida, I guess, in September, right? Yeah, I'm pretty excited. Pretty excited about that. Yeah, it's uh, so, I believe it's what is it, the second annual Florida Skunk Gate Conference, uh, which I believe Stacy Brown is the uh, is uh, putting together out there uh, September 18th to the 20th. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you're going to be doing there. What's your role out there? Um, basically, whatever he'd like me to do. I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I would imagine that we haven't we haven't really talked about it too much. I would imagine that uh, I think I offered to possibly teach a track casting class. I think somebody else might be doing that as well. Uh, I would uh, be more than happy, probably like to talk about wilderness survival and backpack preparedness and things of that nature. And I'd like to share with the, the, the people over there that uh, kind of what we're about and what we're doing. And most importantly, I'd like to, you know, while I'm there, put emphasis on the documentation end of things. Sure. And so that's that's what I, I would imagine that uh, I'm going to have a presentation and I'll talk a little bit and maybe give a class. And then I think we're going to do some field time which I'm very excited about because I've been to Florida once in my life for about two hours before I hopped on a, a cruise boat. And so I have never hiked in Florida. don't know anything about, you know, hiking or uh, tromping through the, the brush in Florida, but I'm looking extremely forward to it. Can't sure. wait. I, uh, I've actually been to Florida several times and uh, never never squatching there, but uh, I, I can tell you that it, it is a different animal. And uh, mm -hmm. when, I, when I say that, I mean there's different animals there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, uh, not quite as friendly. Um, sure. Or, or, I, I guess I shouldn't say that because I guess uh, even out there there's some unfriendly. I'm, I'm actually looking right now for the uh, – I have on my computer the uh, list of guests and speakers that will be at his his outing 
but I unfortunately I can't find it at the moment. But well, I can. I, I think I can tell you from memory. It's yeah. myself. Uh, it's me, uh, Michael Merchant, mm-hmm. uh, Todd Disatel, and who else? Is there? Oh, Justin Smea. I believe yeah. is going to be there. And uh, you know, I've, I've of course gotten a bunch of. PM messages from people all over Facebook world. Can't believe you're going to present with Justin. Can't believe you're going to present here with that person or with this person. It's like, you know what? I, too bad. Don't go. <laughs> right, right. Don't go. You know, uh, the, it's just kind of like the, kind of like the, uh, the last symposium we had here in Washington. Uh, I took a lot of flack for being on the stage with Todd Standing and, right. uh, but I had no control over that. And, we were there presenting the Olympic project, talking about sure. the Olympic project, and just because I'm appearing at an event with somebody else doesn't mean I advocate or condone anything that they do or any of their research or anything I like. I'm just there representing the Olympic project, and I'm honored that I was asked to go there, and I'm looking forward to it. Sure, sure. And, and I'll tell you what, just on, on a lighter note, I, I've talked to Justin, and I've talked to him for quite a while, and he's a very, very nice guy, very fun mm-hmm. to talk to, very interesting guy. And, you know, if if anybody, for any reason, wouldn't want to go just because of, uh, just because Justin was there, that's, that's just, that's asinine in my opinion. Um, great guy. Um, and I think he has a lot to offer, you know. So well, Justin is my friend, you know. Sure. Whether, whether what he did or didn't do was right or wrong or yeah, all that is, uh, in my opinion, and which is the only thing I can speak to is, beside the point, Justin is my friend. Uh, Justin's always been very nice to me. Uh, I like you, like him a lot, and uh, you know, if people people don't like that. Uh, the unfriend button on Facebook is really easy to find. <laughs> yeah, right under friends. <laughs> nope, nope. And I, you know, I'll just make no excuses about it. You know, the guy's he's been my friend for years now, and uh, never done anything wrong to me. And uh, I could argue all day about what he experienced or what what happened, and uh, that's beside the point. You know, right, right. So, there's actually a chance that I will actually be at that event as well. Um, Stacy told me that uh, he may have me come out and MC that event. So that would be obviously a lot of fun. And 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 like you, I feel the same way. If anyone has an issue with that, uh, that unfriend button is is sitting right there. <laughs> yep, easy to find. <laughs> yes, yeah, easy to find. But uh, I mean, I, you know, hopefully no one does. But if if someone feels that strong about it, then shame on them, and uh, and we'll move forward. You but, betcha. Uh, Everybody's entitled to their own opinion, for sure. And you know, I'm a pretty live and let live person. I, I really, really am. And uh, no. I just, I, if we, if, if if I get invited to speak somewhere, I don't generally, you know, look at who's who's on the guest list to make sure it's okay that I speak there because I don't take myself that serious. I'm a freaking redneck from Toledo, Washington. I'm, <laughs> you know, there are people talk about rock stars and fame in the Bigfoot world, and you know, there is no rock stars and there is no fame. It's just. Some people and their researchers got more, you know, got some attention here and there and, and whatever. But you can't take yourself too seriously, for God's sake. It's, this is Bigfoot. Half the world thinks we're crazy, anyways. So, <laughs> you know, that's true. It's, that's true. It's crazy. It's a crazy field. Yeah. Now I, I know that, and, and, and I'm just asking. I haven't talked to Stacy about this, but I know at one point he said Dr. Todd Vista would only be doing a video presentation from, you know, like through Skype or something. Is is that changed? Is he going to be there this time? I have no idea. Okay. Not a clue. Okay. Wasn't sure. I didn't know if you were privy to that or not. Uh, just have to check no, last time I actually spoke to Stacy was uh, actually via PM message when he was telling me the dates were changing, and that was good for me because <laughs> the original dates weren't going to work too well for me. 
<laughs> well, good, good. Well, it's, it's a good thing it worked out, and and, and obviously you, you you can headline any event in the country. And uh, and I, you know, I again I look forward to meeting you in in July, um, and maybe maybe again several other times here and there. But um, well, we'd love to get you up to to one of the expeditions, or even if we're not having an expedition, just come up and do some research with us. Ed. I think you'd enjoy it. Man, I, I would. I would thoroughly enjoy the opportunity to get out there and uh, and and just like you said, kind of become one with nature and, and just soak in that atmosphere. Because to me, that's just it's a beautiful, beautiful area. Oh, and I'm gonna do a shameless plug here real quick. Uh, <laughs> as far as the Bay Expedition is concerned, we were sold out, and we had three cancellations. People that couldn't figure out how to get there or whatever. And uh, today, one of those spots was taken. That there are two spaces left, two and spots. we, yeah, we, uh, it's it's limited to 12 people. And once those two spots are gone, they're gone. So if anybody that is listening would be interested in going, hit me up on Facebook. And uh, registration is really simple, and uh, we'll get you some more information. But again, there are just two spots left. Awesome, awesome. Um, I was going to ask a minute ago, and and I and I kind of lost track of you know. Conversation sometimes just takes off on me, but that's because I'm all over the place, man. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> it's not your fault. It's mine. <laughs> if when people go, I think, do you provide um, sleeping areas, uh, food, things like that? I mean, what, what is it? What do people bring? I guess. What do they need? The people have to bring. We we provide a amazing place to camp. Uh, it's right at the the base of a mountain. Uh, in the Olympics, and it's it's absolutely gorgeous. Uh, we provide the presentations, uh, the camping, the classes, and that's that's pretty much what you're paying for is the camping, the presentation, and the classes. And then uh, we all we, there's a lot of free hiking going on, uh, some organized hiking. Uh, it's just we just we get out and do what we do, and that's the other cool thing. You know, the field time is we don't. You know, there, we have this one amazing place that we like to take people to. It's it's a breathtaking waterfall, and it's it is up in one of our research areas. And love hiking people up in there because it's it's not an easy easy task to get up in there. And uh, but once you do, the payoff it's huge. So we usually, you know, everybody will walk out to that. And then uh, beyond that, we go about life as normal. We don't we're not trying to take people to a spot. You know, nothing is staged. It's life as normal with the Olympic project. If we have cameras to check, we go check them. If we have cameras to retrieve or cameras to place, we go do that. And that is, I think, one of the beauty parts of this expedition. There isn't, we're not staging anything for people's enjoyment. We are showing the absolute real research that we do and, uh, come on. That's, that's, that's how it works. Works for us anyways. That'd be a pretty cool aspect. I mean, just think about going there. And you guys go retrieve some cameras, and you're looking through the footage, you know, to be there when you see some anomaly on the on the on the film, and going, okay, scratch your head, like, okay, yeah, <laughs> what could that it's be? really yeah. cool. Yeah, I mean, camera camera research is is a freaking blast. I mean, it's it's like Christmas, and as long as I've been doing it, it's still just as exciting every time you slip a disc into the into the deal because it's, you don't know what's going to be on there, and I get as excited, you know, to see a big cougar walking by or a bear or whatever. It's just, it's just like Christmas time. It's so cool. Right, right. Which actually leads me to, to the next thing that I want to talk about, 
and that is this thermal image that you that well, I guess I don't, I don't know if you were there. The Olympic Project collected, and uh, and, and I'm, I'm actually watching the video right now, and it's the two subjects coming from across the, the pathway. Kind of tell us a little bit about that and kind of set that up for us. Kind of let us know what's going on with that. Sure. And the first thing I'll say about it, I don't know if uh, people are going to be seeing it, uh, but I think some people have seen it because I put it up on Facebook. But I would like to say that it is 100% inconclusive. Uh, we're not claiming that it's a Sasquatch at all. Uh, we're claiming that it's very interesting given the circumstances that we filmed it in. So what happened? I mean, it's not on par. Like uh, uh, both sets of the Browns have a really good thermal. Stacy's got great thermal. Sarah's got Sarah and John have great thermal. Uh, it's not up on par with that stuff at all. But it is very interesting. Uh, and the interesting thing is we were on a very large clear cut in our core research area. And doing the filming was myself and Shane Corson. We were up on top of the ridge. And down below, quartered to the left, was David Ellis and Keith Alquin and a couple other people. And they were broadcasting uh, the John Andrews long howl uh, through an electronic device, you know, blowing it up through the ridge with a lot of force, And uh, which is something that I think that's the only time we've ever done that. We just said, what the heck, let's try it. So we were doing that, and it was a very clear night, beautiful night. And uh, about a half an hour after the broadcasting started, these this subject, this very large subject, appeared. Uh, and you see it in the video. And so it's just a it's just an anomaly. It's a big round thermal hit. And Shane and I were sitting there just getting annihilated by mosquitoes, and I didn't have a tripod with me. So we're we're watching this thing, and he has one therm, and I have another. And uh, he had a, a small unit in his hand, and I had the recording one looking through that one, uh, recording the video there. And as we're watching it, again, this is a half an hour after David started broadcasting, there was only one deer in the clear cut, and it was way over to the left, probably 500, 400 yards from where the subject was. We knew that deer was there because we'd spotted it first. So this subject showed up half an hour after we started broadcasting, and we, Shane and I were just back and forth trying to figure out if it was moving or not. Is this thing moving? Is it a big elk? Is it a bear? What is it? We knew it was live just because of the thermal signature. And so we're watching it, watching it, watching it, and then a smaller one appeared to the right of it in the video. And in, the, in time, it goes up and joins with the bigger one. And then whatever, something happens, not sure what, but it, it looks like either something reaches up onto the tree or if it's an elk, maybe the elk's head sticks up higher, uh, not really sure, uh, and I, we're never going to be sure, actually. Uh, I don't I don't know what it is. Uh, none of us know what it is. I just know it's really interesting, given the fact that we were broadcasting very loudly into this clear cut. Mm -hmm. uh, so what did we do? We, we got this footage, uh, studied it until our eyes hurt trying to figure something out, and then we did a recreation with uh, two people, uh, Abigail and Josiah Bernard. Uh, two other Olympic Project members, and Josiah is a great big dude. He's six two or six three, and he's ripped. He's just a great big guy. And when in the recreation that we did, he was about the same size as the smaller subject in the in the footage, and almost identical. He was about the same size as Josiah. Now the bigger object was every bit of twice his size. Sure. And uh, which doesn't rule out elk. Could be elk. Uh, don't know. Uh, the, the curious thing about the video is whatever extremity or whatever kind of seems to reach up the tree, 
And again, it could be an elongated elk head. At one point during the video, I think you can see two eyes very, you know, not clearly, but you can see them poke through. And so I, we don't know what it is. It's just really interesting. But again, not conclusive at all. Uh, just interesting because we were broadcasting proposed Bigfoot sounds. And uh, for elk to wander into an area with that going on, I think would be kind of weird. But uh, there are a lot of elk up there. But the elk herd, the resident elk herd that is there is almost 50 elk deep. It's a big herd. And uh, so if it was elk, then it was just two stragglers off the herd that popped in to see what was going on. But we're never going to know. And at this point, it's just chalked up to interesting. Sure. Well, I, I, I can I tell you through my observation, and, and I, <laughs> I am I am no uh, I'm no um, expert in video analysis. Um, you know, no thinker thunker. I'll put it that way. But, I, but I'll tell you, if if the one were an elk, and and could it be absolutely, the other one is not. You know, it does. The other one, the smaller one, doesn't show any characteristics of any kind of uh, four-legged animal, such as an elk or a moose or whatever. You know, so it certainly does look upright as well. Yes, exactly, exactly. And if if assuming the big one were an elk. Why would there be something else with it? You know, it doesn't make, you know, it just doesn't make any sense. So that's a great question. And I will also say that David Ellis, we did direct him over there, and there were no people anywhere around. Uh, this was on a gathering, not an expedition, just a gathering. And this place is very deserted at night, uh, and even during the day, it's deserted almost all the time. But uh, right. so yeah, it's just it's really interesting, and it's it's just unfortunate that. Uh, I think we've learned all about it that we can, and, you know, there are some, you know, between both both brown uh, thermals, uh, Sarah and John's and Stacy's, both those are really good and way more definitive than uh, what we've got, but what we've got is pretty interesting. So we did our due diligence and recreated it and, you know, tried to learn everything we could about it, and now we're just going to try to get it to repeat and try to make it happen again and hopefully have a tripod and hopefully the mosquitoes won't be as bad. <laughs> sure, sure. And, and, and I want to add real quick that, you know, number number one, I want to thank you for permission to letting us add this to the end of the video. So, uh, listeners, stay tuned to the end because it, we are going to show this video. If you haven't seen it yet, it's, it's definitely pretty interesting, definitely something you want to see. Um, but, but I want to add that one of the things that that I that I am most impressed with uh, Derek Randall's and, and the Olympic Project is the fact that he states right away, you know, this is not definitive. You know, there's nothing, you know, I'm not saying 100% sure this is a Bigfoot. And and it's it's that attitude that, that I really like because he's not he's not showing a, a broken stick and saying Bigfoot did this. You know, he's showing some good evidence and saying that, you know, hey, hey, you know take it for what it is. I, I don't know. So, with that being said, Derek, I do want to say that, that uh, as a as a Bigfooter first, as a, an enthusiast first, I, I appreciate that from what you have done, and, and not just now, but in the past as well. So I think that's, that's well, really cool. I appreciate that, Ed. Thank you. No problem. No problem. Well, Derek, listen, man, I have taken up a lot of your time this evening, and I, I know with work and everything else, I know you've been, you know, uh, really, really busy, <laughs> and uh, and I'm sure you're, you know, you're probably ready to have dinner and relax a little bit. But, but I but I want to give you an opportunity if there's something that maybe we haven't touched on or something maybe we didn't talk about that maybe you'd like to add just to uh, close out the show. 
that's a good one. We covered quite a bit. Uh, no, I just uh, let's see. I just want to I want to give a shout out to everybody in the Olympic project. Uh, the, I consider these people brothers and sisters. Uh, I love this organization. I love the people I work with. I'm very fortunate to to work with the people that I work with. Uh, there's some some dynamic people, and they have a lot to offer. Uh, the work we're, we are we are trying very hard to make advancements in this field. And oh yeah, there's something I'll add. The uh, we do we are marketing shirts, t-shirts, uh, t-shirts, hoodies, and hats. And that money is going back into equipment. Uh, any profits, and there's not a lot of profit in this stuff, but there is some, and it is helpful. And that stuff can be found if you if anybody's interested in any any of our apparel stuff, they can just hit me on Facebook and I can go over it like that. And it's very much appreciated. A lot of people have bought some stuff already, and it's it's been fantastic the support and also the nice comments from the people that have bought stuff uh, in support of the Olympic project. But I just uh, I feel like the luckiest researcher in the world getting to work with the folks that I work with, and oh, it is an absolute blast. I mean, we have we have a really good time, and uh, I guess that's it, you know. Uh, David uh, David Ellis is doing some amazing things with audio research. Uh, Tom Baker is doing some amazing data analysis stuff, and some of this stuff we'll, we'll be sharing when when some of it's a little more complete, and some of the stuff is shared now. But uh, as we progress, we'll continue to share the research that we do. Sure. And uh, for anybody that stepped up, uh, we thanks for your thanks for your support. I appreciate it. And, and before before we close, I do want to say that you know you, you mentioned you know the fine folks that, that are members of the Olympic Project, and and one of them actually uh, Shelly Covington Montana, who mm-hmm. I, I think she's a sweetheart. I, I love her to death. Uh, yeah, great, she's awesome. Great, great lady. She actually sent me, and and this kind of goes back to the kind of people that Derek's talking about that he's working with. She sent me a DNA collection kit that she put together <laughs> herself, and I'm going to tell you what this thing is really really cool. And I talked about this in another interview, and you know, by all means, go watch it or whatever. But, but if you get an opportunity, contact Shelly and 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 see if you can um, purchase one of these from her or get one of these from her or or whatever however she wants to do it. But I'm telling you, this thing has everything in it. I mean, from tweezers to envelopes to little test tube thingies and. You know, oh, it's complete. I have one in my backpack. Uh, James yeah. has one in his backpack. I think most of us do. They are. It is a really comprehensive kit, and that yeah. that that just touches back on what we get out of having people come on these expeditions. She came on an expedition as an attendee, sure, and yeah, she taught us something. I mean, she taught us how to, to categorize all this stuff and put it in an easy pack where you could fit it in your backpack, and uh, it's just amazing information. And her her kit is very very complete. If you're if you're into gathering DNA evidence or possible DNA evidence, her everything that you need is in a small package. It's right in your backpack, and it's she, there's nothing she hasn't thought of. I'll tell you. It's no, a I, I agree. I mean, I'm talking down to rubber gloves, face mask. This thing has everything in it, and and uh, and, I, and I was I was honored that she sent it to me. And after looking through it, I was just like, holy cow, she even thought of that. You know, oh man, she thought of that, <laughs> and she oh wow, she thought of that. So she she did a great job, and and I and I. I definitely wanted to plug that there because what she's put together is really cool, and everyone should have one. Even if collecting DNA evidence isn't your thing, you never really know what you're going to run into out there. And if you see something, you might want to get it. And if you're going to get it, you might as well do it right. Well, I couldn't <laughs> she, agree more. And she's made that easy. But uh, 
So anyway, Derek, well, thank you, man. I, I appreciate your time tonight. And uh, and uh, if you unless you have anything else, I guess. Uh, yeah, there's there is one more thing I'd like to sure. add. Sure. Uh, I again, I can never talk enough about David Ellis. Uh, the guy is <laughs> amazing. And I would say that if there's any researchers out there that have audio that they would like David to look at or listen to to get his take, he'll put it up, put it through spectrographic analysis, and uh, tell you he can tell you what it isn't. <laughs> right. <laughs> For sure. Tell you what's interesting, and he is just a very gracious person, and I'm quite sure that if anybody has any audio they would like him to hear, uh, look him up on Facebook. He goes by the moniker of Galahad Whitby. That's Galahad Whitby. And uh, he is, I haven't seen him turn anybody down. I mean, he is a total audio geek, and he's very, very good at it. Uh, so if there is anybody that's got audio and they'd like like to know more about what they've got recorded, please get in touch with us. You can get in touch with him through me or, again, like I said, on Facebook through Galahad Whitby. And I leave you with that. That's Galahad. What was the last word? Whitby, W-H-I, uh, let's see, Whitby. It's like Whitby Island. I can't even think exactly how to spell it. But if, if you uh, if you get a hold of me, I can hook you up with him. Sure. Uh, very easy. Good deal. Good deal. And we'll uh, we'll we'll see if we can't post that right here on the video as well, so that uh, that's there, so people can see it. Um, well, hang on a second. Up. I'll get you. I'll get you a spelling here. It's G E G A. Let's start again. G A L A H A D. That's the first name. Last name Whitby. W H I D B E Y. Yeah, it's just Galahad Whitby. He lives on Whitby Island, so just Galahad and then Whitby. And just say, hey, you know, I heard Derek talk on the radio, and I've got some cool audio. Could you listen to it? And I would imagine he would jump right on it because he, he loves that stuff. Good deal. Good deal. Um, well, I actually know some people that might have uh, some stuff for that, so so we'll, uh, we'll be looking him up for sure. Um, and also, he is a, a wealth of information. If you, One of the things that uh, he talks about and stresses all the time is especially like with uh, Finding Bigfoot episodes or uh, even uh, like Les Stroud, you know, and actually I've, I've gotten uh, had the privilege of doing a little bit of consulting for Les Stroud right now. And Tom Baker is uh, sharing some charts and graphs with him that I think he's going to use. And David has just sent him uh, some audio from one of his shows where things were heard that uh, he could see Les react to something that he heard. Well, David isolated it, a <laughs> spectrographic wow. analysis. And that's been forwarded on to him. So that's been really cool, being able to, you know, very loosely, you know, do some consulting for him. It's been been just awesome because that guy is my hero. Uh, but if the other thing that David is very good at is telling people how to affordably get into audio recording. Sure. Because, like, if you watch an episode of Finding Bigfoot, you'll see them hear something, but you never really hear it. And did it get recorded? Did not get recorded. And uh, so David is just, it just drives him crazy. <laughs> so, so he, he's very, very versed at uh, being able to hook people up with, uh, you know, to, to tell them what to buy as far as Netroll or listening device. And uh, he's just a great resource if you're into audio at all. And more people should be into audio because there's a lot of stuff that's sure. out there that can be analyzed. So. Okay. Absolutely. If, if you're not using audio equipment, then, then you're you're not collecting the evidence, and uh, that's pretty well put. <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> use that. So uh, good deal. Yeah. So we'll so we'll look him up, and we'll uh, hopefully uh, 
hopefully we'll get something out of that. If uh, if he does get something, you know, let us know and we'll uh, we'll air it. You know, we'll we'll talk about it on the next show. And there you go. Hopefully, hopefully it doesn't take a year to have you back again. And and again, <laughs> as I said, Derek was our very first guest on our on our show, and and I, I can't tell you how happy I was to have an opportunity to talk to you again, Derek. Because since that since that time, I felt like Derek and I became uh, pretty good friends. Um, we chatted here and there. Uh, Derek actually looked over a print that I found, uh, looked at the picture, um, gave me his opinion. So you know, Derek's always been there to help people out, and uh, and I'm sure he will continue to do, do so. And uh, and as an enthusiast, again, thank you for being uh, Derek Randall's. Well, you bet, man. I appreciate your friendship, Ed, and uh, uh, you're a, a heck of a good interviewer and a very very nice man. And I appreciate you having me on. Well, thank you very much. All right, Derek, without further ado, if you have nothing else, we will go ahead and uh, we'll call it quits for this time on this episode. But uh, everybody pay attention. Keep an eye out for the next one. Uh, we actually have a uh, nice uh, uh, Sasquatch Encounters episode coming up pretty soon. Uh, I'm sure you've heard of uh, Barb Shoup uh, and her poking video. The young lady who was with her when that happened, we will be doing a Sasquatch uh, Encounters episode with her coming up later this week. So that ought to be interesting. All right, Derek. With that, we're out. All right, Ed. You take care, man. I'll talk to you soon. All right, buddy. Wow, this is beautiful out here. Let's check on this chicken. Smells good. Woo, looks good. Hey, what's going on? I didn't know you were listening over there. How's it going? Welcome to Gordon Speaks. We're just a variety show that talks about various topics, man, ranging from music to horror movies to cultivation to travel to quantum physics i have various guests and uh all sorts of different segments that are guaranteed (laughs) to ignite your auditory and imaginative senses if you like to laugh if you like to smile if you dig some variety in your life come on over to gordon speaks check us out we'll be here on the dock peace The second co-founder we will be studying today is involved in law enforcement and is an avid outdoorsman, hunter, and tracker. He had his first encounter with Sasquatch while on patrol near Forks, Washington in 2000. He met Derek in the winter of 2008 where he told him about his idea of camera trapping a large area in the Olympic mountain range. It was on this day the Olympic project was born. Here is Rich Germo's story. Uh, my name is Rich Jermo. I live in uh, East Jefferson County, uh, Washington State. Um, I grew up in this area, spent most of my life around here in different parts of was- Western Washington. And I did live for a few years up in Alaska when I was growing up too. In the year 2000, I was a police officer for the LaPush tribe 
which is or the Quileute tribe on the coast, uh, which is west of Forks by probably about 15 or 16 miles. And uh, I happened to be driving into work one evening about 7 p.m. in, Ju in a July, in July, and, uh, and one just happened to walk across the road in front of my car. I was about 50 to 70 yards from it, and uh, it was daylight. It was about 7 p.m. in July, but during that time of year in July, it's pretty well light at 7 p.m. And I was coming into work for my shift, and I was coming down the hill into La Push, past the two housing areas, uh, right by um, First Beach, which would be the beach right on La Push. And Lonesome Creek comes out there. And there's a little hatchery, and just beyond that, there's a little store on the left and the campground on the beach. And uh, one came out of the brush right at Lonesome Creek, crossed the road, and hit the fence on the hatchery and kept going. So it went right at the edge of it. And at that time, La Push was different. They had not enhanced everything along the road to the left on the water side. It was just brush. At first, you know, it was just huge, and it was all dark and bushy-looking, no neck. And uh, it didn't even look at me. It didn't walk in a human gait. It kind of glided across the road is the way I would best describe it. No head bob or anything like that, and it took about four steps, cleared the road. It wasn't moving, it wasn't running or anything, it was just walking, but it was walking swiftly. You see something like that, it just doesn't, immediately your mind starts working to try to fit it into a box of a known thing to yourself. And... Um, I just kept going around and around, and ultimately I knew what it was. I wasn't a believer in anything like that before that had happened, but I couldn't place it anywhere, and uh, I knew what it was, but I, logically it, that didn't make any sense. It couldn't be that, and so I tried to go round and round. I stopped my car in the middle of the road, and this all happened quickly, you know, and I was frightened, nervous right away when I saw it because it was just a shock, and uh I knew what it was. I mean, it was, you know, thick from chest to back. I mean, probably like that I would expect. I, m my description would be, as far as size, was probably somewhere around 8 feet and maybe 800 pounds. It didn't, it didn't look human. It, was, it just did not move in a human way. Uh, and it was big. And it wasn't wearing any clothes. It was clearly all the same color from head to toe. No shoes, no nothing. And it, you know, it, was, it was large, and it was the kind of thing that there's obvious markers in the movement of it that makes you identify that it's not a human being. It's something else. And so you're trying to classify it into some known category, but you can't do it and so, because it just doesn't fit. It's just visually there in front of you, and it, it doesn't fit with anything that you're comfortable in, in knowing that exists. It's something outside of that realm. I drove right down to the office, which was about another mile and a half probably there, and there was a county deputy there, and two of my coworkers were there. And uh, I walked in, and I kind of looked shooken up, I think, and they asked me, what happened to you? And I said, you'll never believe what just happened. I said, I just seen a Bigfoot at Lonesome Creek. And they kind of laughed at me. and, and uh, the deputy did, and, and they were kind of taken back a bit. And uh, after we talked for a little while, one of my other coworkers had told me that uh, him and one of the guy was actually giving me a lot of trouble. They were up four wheel, and they used to have a four wheel drive club in town where they had Suzuki Samurais. And this was back in you know around 2000, at in 2000, and uh, 
they had been up in the Clawaw drainage, which is outside of Forks, and they had found two sets of tracks, and they all told each other they weren't going to tell anybody. But then we went back, uh, where I didn't go with him because I was too afraid. But the guy who was telling me that, he went back and tried to find tracks where I had seen it and couldn't find anything. There was another sighting uh, that happened at the Hoe River oh, a few weeks before that. It was called the Gene Sampson incident where they had an incident outside his house and there was a bunch of documented footprints and everything like that down there. And it's only about 10 miles south of there. Okay. And not that they, they may or may not be related the two incidents, but no, I wasn't involved in Bigfoot research or anything like that at all after that. I, I kind of, it changed my behavior because I spent a lot of time in the woods out there by myself. I fished all the time, mostly alone, and I went to a lot of remote places on the peninsula where I'd walk miles and miles with no trails and stuff, just on the river steelhead fishing and stuff like that. And, and uh, after I'd seen it, I felt really vulnerable because there was a realization that Something that wasn't supposed to be real was real. And this thing is big and powerful and humanoid and potentially very intelligent, you know. And it just made me realize that if something like this was out there and it wanted to make you disappear, that it could. And there was absolutely nothing that you could do to stop that from happening. For a long time, for a matter of years, I really didn't want to go anywhere alone or I wouldn't go very far. Uh, by myself, just because I was aware of that, and, and you got to keep in mind that this is something that isn't real. It's not supposed to be there, you know. You know, and I also right away afterwards I felt betrayal. I felt as if I was being betrayed because I obviously wasn't the first professional to see something like this, you know. And uh, I wanted to know. I mean, I didn't pursue it at all, but I felt like I had just seen this thing. And this wasn't the only one, and I wasn't the only one to see it, you know, and why is it a secret? How come we don't know about this? You know, most Bigfoot researchers, they tend to ignore all this stuff, and they only take into account legitimate stuff that's within their acceptable belief system, I guess. Uh, And uh, they tend to throw everything else out the back door and not consider it. But unfortunately, you know, about 60% of the evidence is all that stuff they want to throw away. You know, and um, I started seeing this stuff, and it just didn't really make sense, and I wasn't into accepting it. I take, I take it into account, because I was talking to people that I really trusted after a period of time and forming a relationship over with them, and they were stuck on these stories of this weird stuff. And, you know, I just kind of chalked it up Just you know, they're eccentric people, you know, and, and a lot of people that have these own on, ongoing encounters and stuff like that, they're not normal people. They're kind of weird. You know, they all are, have a weird weirdness to them, you know. And um, I took it into consideration because I didn't think that it was doing myself any justice to not take and consider this evidence. But it was something that I really couldn't accept, you know, at that time. But as time went on... And I kept putting cameras in places or trying to hide them and trap these things, create traps, you know, to where there's no way they could know it's there and there's no way they could avoid it. But they do every time, you know. And um, over a period of time, you know, I was becoming more and more accepting in it and, and, and uh, having less and less faith in the technology I was using and the tactics I was using because I knew I was doing everything right and I was where I needed to be, except it wasn't coming together. And, um, you know, finally, what 
the peak, how it all peaked out was uh, I was working at this location for a long period of time. We started it in 08 in this one spot when, in the very beginning. And uh, this site in particular was on an island close to where I live. It's called Harstein Island. And um, we were following a report where we went to this location where these renters were at along the road, North Island, on Harstein Island Drive North. And uh, it's in an area, historically, though, that we were able to look back and see through the, through the BFRO database where over a 10-year period of time, there was like eight or 10 sightings crossing the road in this spot. And more than once, there was multiples of them seen, like two. And all different people had seen them. They were either going home or they were just driving through the island. It was all at night when they were seeing these things. And so we were feeling pretty good about the area because we had historical data to back up the new, the new reports. I had five cameras in this one little tight area. It was a really small area where they were crossing in this, basically an alleyway between two roads, and there were people living on these two sides. And this area stretched for about a mile and a half down to a beach. One day, it was November 11th, 2010, and uh, I had ran for sheriff that year, and I would lost the election. And, and uh, I think that was the day you were supposed to pull up your campaign signs. So I went all around, and I headed to the island, and I'm pulling signs. And... Uh, I just happened to be in the area, and I usually go here about once a week and check my cameras and do other things, too. I might put toys out on tree stumps or leave stuff around to see if it gets picked up or moved and just things of that nature. I used to always carry a gun out in the woods with me, not for Bigfoot, just, just because. You never know what can happen, and there's animals out there, and you never know. And I just something that made me feel safer, and I was a cop, so I carried a gun at work all the time anyways. So, but this time in particular, I didn't. And I do think there's significance to the fact that I didn't that day. I didn't pay any attention to it, but I was aware of it, that I just had a strange feeling from the minute that I pulled in there, that I shouldn't be there, that I should just go home. But there's no reason for me to pay attention to that intuition or that feeling, so I ignored it. And I went and checked the first camera, and I did find what looked like a faint impression by the camera to the side, about this long you know, the shape of a foot, but no real detail other than the needles were kind of flattened in that spot. And, and that's something that I would look for, you know, because the substrate in this area, it's, you know, there's a lot of places these things walk and they don't leave any tracks. You know, they have to step in the right type of soil to leave an impression. And, um, but it was something I paid attention to. I was excited to look at that camera when I got home because it certainly looked like something with a big foot stepped by the camera to check it out or something. And I kept feeling unsettled, uh, a strange feeling of dread, whatever that means. It's like the whole world was starting to get really close around me. It was, it's, and it was kind of overcast and slightly drizzling, you know, but quiet at the same time. No birds making a noise, nothing. So I walked from that camera and I went down to another one, which is about 75 yards off the road in this old site where there's an old outhouse next to there, and it's like a little alder stand. And I'm checking this camera there, and then, I, and then my awareness really gets heightened, you know, and I'm just sensing all kinds of weird stuff and not feeling right, feeling dread, feeling like the world is going to end, kind of strange feeling, like, but out of context. There's no reason for it. Just feel bad. You know, and uh, not sick or anything, but just, I can't even explain to you. It's nothing I've ever felt before and nothing I've ever felt since then. And it kept building and building and building. And I have like 25 keys on this ring. 
and I'm going through the keys and I'm trying this camera and every key I'm checking, I feel more of a sense of urgency to leave and more. And then, you know, I kept hearing twigs break off to my northwest and you can see like 70 yards and then there's a creek in this, this area covered with the big, uh, with cedar trees and the limbs come down real low so you can't see in there at all or beyond it. I've walked in there a bazillion times and stuff, but you can't see. But I kept hearing what sounded like something was snapping twigs. And it sounded close, but I keep looking and there's nothing there. Nothing. And uh, I keep going through the keys and I'm starting to feel more and more afraid. You know, like, what is it? What is going on here? There's something over there. And I'm looking for something to to satisfy me, like it's a known thing that it's not anything to be afraid of. And I keep hoping something comes out. or, And then I hear this, which I've heard it before. It sounds like a deer's making a snort, right? And it's rut season at this time in November, so I'm thinking, okay, it's a buck. And maybe I'm going to see it in a second, but I don't. And it's come from the same direction. And uh, I get to the second to the last key, and it, it, I've already made up my mind. If I get through these keys, and I, because sometimes the, the locks don't open because they get corroded and stuff like that a little bit, and sometimes they're hard. To, you have to really turn them to, to open them. Sometimes you bust the keys off even doing it because they get bad. And I, was, I was thinking to myself, there's no way I'm going through this ring of keys again. I feel like my world's going to end, like I'm not going to get out of here for something. And it's not. I'm 75 feet away from the road, or 75 yards. And there's cars driving by. You know, if they, if there's no leaves on the trees and stuff. I'm not expecting someone's going to come grab me and take me away or there's any real danger that's there. But I feel that there is. But logically, there shouldn't be, you know. And uh, the key opens it on the second to the last key. So I'm relieved, you know. But I'm still, like, I'm, every second I'm stopping and looking around. So this was the... Uh area where I was hearing all the sounds from the twigs break and the deer and this sound was from right here while I was over there checking the camera and at that time there was really very little water in the creek down there because it had been pretty cold so there wasn't a lot of noise coming from that to drown anything out from over here so you could hear, it was really quiet that day too. There wasn't any birds or any wind or anything like that. You could hear really well. Everything was really crisp. And so we came over here the next day and there were impressions from there, back up here and around this corner, and then coming back where it looked like whatever, it, it had gone back and forth a bunch of times. And uh, there were a lot of impressions and there were a couple of really good ones that were stepping into this uh, last area right here. There, were no, there was none of this debris on the ground here at all. And it looked like whatever, um, well, whatever it was doing, when it was going back and forth, it was kind of moving in with, uh, it was moving fast, kind of, because there, there were two tracks here where it had dug its front of its foot in just slightly into the duff, and it left all five toes with the length of the impression. We measured them at like 14 and a half inches. Not this direction off to my northwest, but directly in front of me. I hear, I got my head down, I'm doing this, I hear a, and uh, I mean loud and close. And, um, and it's right in front of me now. 
which caught me off guard because I was hearing everything to my right and nothing, I wasn't aware of anything coming up this way while I was standing here, right? And I never heard anything over this direction at all. And so it's right in front of me. So in my mind, I kind of already know what I'm about to see. And I start to lift my hat head up and I'm wearing a red hat. And as I'm lifting the brim of my hat up, I can see there's something standing up alongside of that. And his head was probably about as high as those ferns. I know in my mind what it is. Uh, it's like something that made a, uh, an exhale groan, like in disappointment, disgust. That is the tone of it. Like it's just frustrated. Like it's making you aware. And I start to lift up my head and I'm wearing a red hat. And as I'm lifting up my head, under the brim of my head, I see there's something standing right next to a big alder tree about 20 yards in front of me. And as I'm lifting up my head, it like knows it's gonna, I'm going to see it. And so it starts to kind of duck down. And it, kinda get, it, it goes from standing up upright along this tree, and it, it kind of starts to duck. And in the same movement, it goes, shoots across this opening, but faces me the whole time. Started to kind of duck down, like I said, about a third of its total height. So its head still would have been about where I'm at now, maybe around here, and it shuffled that way until it was out of view, and I heard nothing, it was this complete, I didn't hear anything break or nothing. So I'm assuming that it just got out of my view and it stopped and it didn't go anywhere. Because I don't see how you could make it through any of this without making a lot of noise. There's just dead and broken trees everywhere. And it was huge. I could see there was stuff stuck in its hair like twigs or something. It was really big and bushy. I mean, it looked like the size of a freaking Volkswagen. It was humongous. And it moved so fast, it was frightening in its speed. And it was silent. There wasn't a noise when it moved. And we didn't find any tracks here. I came back the next day and nothing in this spot. No approach, no leaf. I mean, nothing. But then we went and looked over there, which is where I heard all the noise coming from the whole time, like which I assumed was a diversion later, like there was two and one was diverting my attention while one was close to me the whole time. And I knew the first thing that went through my mind is that if I try to run, there's no way I can get away. This thing's, it'll be, it'll catch me by the time I take four steps. It's 20 yards from me, but it'll be that fast. I mean, cause it moved that quick. And it was just big, powerful and fast. And you could tell. And so I decided, that I was just going to run straight to the road, go right through the blackberry bushes, because there's no way I'd make it to my car. My car is like 200 yards that way, road 75 yards. And that's my safest bet to get to the road, because I thought I was dead. I thought I was dying right there. That was the feeling in me. That is the feeling that whatever was projected in me, whatever it was, that is what I felt. And I started feeling it before the incident even happened. And it wasn't something that I was even thinking of. I wasn't trying to ignore it. I didn't want to deal with this. It was not something that was... I shouldn't be concerned like this, is what I was thinking. Why am I feeling this way? It's not normal. This is out of context with everything. This is not logical that I'm feeling this way. It's like something projected the feeling into me. You know, pretty much immediately after that happened, something started happening to me every night. I'd wake up for about two months straight at 3 a.m. in the morning. And uh, every morning, like clockwork, bam, I'd sit up wide awake. And it would be, I would have a very strong impression like stop looking for them, stop doing cameras, never any consequence. And it was like a third person thing. It wasn't like something was speaking to me or anything like that. I just had a strong impression in me when I'd wake up at 3 a.m. And it was always 3 a.m. on the dot. 
right after, right at the end, towards the end of when I kept getting woken up at 3 a.m. And uh, I stepped out of my car and a Sasquatch screamed at me, just like the scream, high-pitched screams you would hear on recordings on the Internet, 20 feet from my car across the street from my house. And I live in a residential area. There's a lot of green belts and stuff. But I live around other houses. And this was clear as day, volume 10, meant to let me know. We know where you live. And frankly, I'll tell you, I've done some... TV stuff and some interviews and stuff, and I've gone out in the woods a little bit beyond that, but I feel extreme guilt if I do. Like, I'm not supposed to be doing it. And no consequence has ever been expressed, at least any feeling of any consequence or anything like that, because I've tried to seek that out, but nothing has been there. But I just feel really strongly that I'm not supposed to do this. I'm not supposed to look anymore. I have a real intense feeling, and I have it right now when I'm talking to you even. And um, that's all I know about it. But I can tell you the whole thing's weird. The DNA's weird. The stories are weird. Mm -hmm. And they happen over and over and over again. And, uh, you know, it happened to me. And there's this thing, this phenomenon that people claim, they call it zapping. And uh, the theory is that these things use infrasound. You know what infrasound, low-frequency vibration? Okay. And uh, to make you feel a certain way, the military uses infrasound. They can make people physically ill with it. And, and, uh, and, and, and different people feel different stuff at different incidents. Like in my incident, I felt this uh, out-of-context fear before anything even happened and just kind of not right. And afterwards, I didn't feel my heart didn't beat right and everything was weird, you know. And, and I kind of feel like that I kind of experienced that to a degree. And there was some desired effect in the way that they did it that they wanted out of me. And other people just get so sick, they throw up and they get vertigo and dizzy or they lose their sense of direction or they get lost or all different kinds of things happen when, when they feel like they're in the presence of these things. Sometimes it, it can be that way. Sometimes nothing. Some people claim to smell real strong stink and smell and other times they don't. And I've never smelled that where I knew I was in the presence or anything like that. Uh, but that's pretty much my story. Coming to you from the Paranormal Warehouse, Destination Mystery paints the story for paranormal content, abnormal adventures, and the fun behind the investigations. Each week, Mike and Melissa will bring a new adventure that includes going to some of the most remote places in the West. They will tell the story behind the investigation and share with you the evidence they discover. This is not your regular paranormal show. These episodes will bring new content from locations that no one would think to investigate or explore. We will not only tell the spooky story, we will go to the location where the spooky story originated. Fasten your seatbelts as we take you on an adventure that will make you question what's normal and what's paranormal. The following clip you're about to hear are calls that have been recorded by the Olympic Project's researchers.
Sightings of big, hairy beasts roaming the wilderness have kept us wondering, what is really out there? But without hard evidence, you might as well be talking about, well, King Kong. Until now. One researcher has discovered something so convincing, you can't help but wonder whether these creatures really are living amongst us. I've traveled all the way to a remote area in Washington state where there has been sightings everywhere and recently a huge discovery that could change everything we know about Bigfoot. And I'm about to meet the guy who is the Bigfoot expert. The Olympic Project is a group of biologists, scientists, trackers, uh, wildlife people, basically trying to learn everything we can about the species that we're already sure exists. I think what fascinates me about the research is it's unknown and it's just an amazing, like almost an unsurmountable challenge, you know, trying to, to figure out something that most people don't even think is real. I can't help but notice your Bigfoot molds up here. If it's something that a hiker finds, if we find out about it, we'll go out and take a look at it. And then we'll actually take plaster of Paris, pour the cast and wait a couple hours and lift it. Okay, well I didn't come all the way to hear about footprints and the odd sighting. Now it's time for him to show me the goods. This is actually one of the bigger nests that we found right here. Very thick. It is seriously like a mattress. Uh, if you can see in the middle right here how it's so depressed. There's actually a spot for legs right there. That's huge. It is huge. This, this nest actually measured over eight feet long. It looks like a giant bird's nest, the way it's circular, and everything is laid in. All these tips were broken off, gathered, and transported in the nest built. It looks pretty comfy. It does. <laughs> it's like sitting out in an easy chair. <laughs> Have these nests been found anywhere else before? Oh, that's the amazing thing. Yes, uh, Africa. Oh. <laughs> these are identical to gorilla nests, and that's what's so unbelievable. Whoa. Did he say Africa? Gorilla nest? Now things are getting interesting. This whole area is known for Bigfoot activity, so do you want to take me out there and maybe we can have a look? Absolutely. Let's go. We've actually found tracks on this trail before. These tracks are extremely significant to the research that we're doing. Legitimate Sasquatch tracks are very, very rare because Bigfoot is rare. They'll avoid leaving tracks whenever they can. So they're pretty smart. They're extremely smart. Are they dangerous? I would say yes. We're looking for any sign of Bigfoot, you know, as, as far as a crossing, major disruptions in the foliage, tree breaks. Do Bigfoots have a smell? Or do I think they smell? Absolutely. Covered in hair, living in this environment, they're gonna have a stench about them. So we are standing right where you found a Bigfoot track. This was about nine and a half to 10 years ago, and there were two perfect tracks right here. And uh, yeah, it was, it was amazing. I cast them. You did? Yeah. And how big were they? They were about 16 inches long. Whoa. You have been studying Bigfoots for over 32 years. This must be wild for you because even right now, you're finding the biggest discovery yet. Things feel like they're coming together. You have to be extremely patient to do this research, you know? You're looking for something that most people don't even think exists. Well, we didn't find Bigfoot, but I am curious about those nests. I want a second opinion. Bring in the professor. Well, I'm Jeff Meldrum, and I'm a professor of anatomy and anthropology here at Idaho State University. How did you become involved in Bigfoot research? I was exposed to uh, the subject when I was a youngster. 
I was shown a long line of remarkable footprints, 35 to 45 tracks in the mud that were just astounding. That being my area of expertise, human locomotion, footprint evidence for bipedalism in the human fossil record, I became very fascinated with it. You have people sending you evidence of Bigfoot from all over the world. Mm -hmm. In addition to footprints, I get stacks and stacks of envelopes with, with hair, and some of these turn out to be remarkably interesting, sometimes uh, scat. I tell people, unless they found the scat between two tracks <laughs> and it's still steaming, don't bother sending it to me. <laughs> We've received some uh, thought-out specimens, and secretaries don't appreciate getting a, a dripping box uh, of a specimen for Dr. Meldrum. Have you heard about the Bigfoot nests that the Olympic Project have discovered? So here's another nest right here. When I first heard about these, I was fascinated. It was sort of showing the girth of the vegetation, but to have vegetation that's literally broken off the surrounding trees and, and shrub layer and woven into a, a ring quite methodically. They certainly don't resemble what the typical bear nest. The degree of dexterity or lack of dexterity in the paws of a bear, they're basically just going to pull leaves and litter and so forth into a pile to make an insulating layer. But this reminds me of tree nests that gorillas and chimps and uh, orangs make. Where they bend the boughs and they plate them together. And it's actually a fairly complex skill that the young have to learn. So to see, see that type of behavior here uh, is, is pretty interesting and, and, you know, one can't help but think that uh, it points to the behavior of a large primate. Like a big, hairy North American ape? Sure, we still don't have proof, but it might just be a matter of time. Why do you think Bigfoot continues to be so elusive? Why don't we have more substantial proof of it? Well, there's not a, a real easy answer. I mean, for me, the bottom line uh, really is the rarity of this creature. But eventually, it will happen. And that's all I have for you today. If you enjoyed today's episode, or this podcast in general, give us a like on your favorite podcast platform and review us. It helps spread the word of the show, which in turn helps me be able to produce new and exciting material for you, the listener. The Olympic Project have found so much evidence with an exceptional team of researchers, biologists, and a number of other skilled and accomplished individuals, dedicating their time and efforts to provide as much evidence as they can, all for people like you and I, and people that refuse to believe. Their findings will one day aid to the recognition of Sasquatch. They have so much information on their findings, their research techniques, and so much more. So please go to www.olympicproject.com and support this group of researchers. Before I let you go, I want you to remember, love each other, love yourself, be kind, be safe, and until next time.